This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is off today. Marcus Ashworth joins me uh, from Bloomberg Opinion in the UK. I mean, oh my God, there's some serious news flow happening um, on this Monday. It's hard to know where to start. Let me just throw out a couple things. Uh, You got the BOE, again, trying to intervene into the market, helping the mortgage market, trying to help pension funds. Did it work? I don't know. We'll talk to Marcus about it. You're looking at some really chunky moves in European bond markets. You have a nice bid into Italian uh, bonds. You have yields down seven basis points in the 10-year. In France and in Germany, though, the selling uh, pressure intensifies. Yields up by 14, 11 basis points. That's all because we might have some joint EU issuance on debt in order to deal with the energy crisis. That's just two of them. Then we have the war in Ukraine heating up. We have a semi-manufacturing conductor war here between Europe, excuse me, between China and the U.S. Uh, in terms of chips. You also have earnings coming. There's economic data. Did I forget anything, Marcus? <laughs> I think you've got a fair a fair amount. There's definitely a lot of moving parts, particularly uh, uh, in guilds and European bond markets, as, as you highlighted today. Uh, for a very quiet, theoretical sort of part U.S. holiday, um, yeah, it's been a busy day. Yeah, I thought the whole point was to wait till Thursday with the U.S. CPI, but apparently I was mistaken. That's a quick snapshot. Let's get some more stories here with Charlie Pellet. Right, thank you very much, Alex Still, Here's what's going on. President Vladimir Putin has threatened further missile attacks on Ukraine after Russia hit Kiev and other cities in the most intense barrage of strikes since the first days of its invasion, marking a dangerous new escalation in the war. Today's bombardment came a day after Putin accused Ukrainian forces of carrying out an explosion that damaged a flagship road and rail bridge connecting Crimea to Russia. Ukraine has not officially claimed responsibility for the blast. Prime Minister Liz Truss has named a Treasury veteran James Baller as the new top civil servant in the UK's finance ministry, favoring an experienced hand as she seeks to reassure markets about her government's economic credibility. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank are warning of the rising risk of a global recession as faster inflation forces central banks to raise rates, grimping growth, higher borrowing costs, according to the IMF, quote, really are starting to bite. London's famous Battersea Power Station will open its doors for the first time in almost 40 years this Friday, taking on a new lease of life following a glitzy but sometimes controversial renovation. It was once a coal-fired power station that supplied a fifth of London's electricity. The building is now home to hundreds of shops, bars, and restaurants. Apple and Rolex are among the corporate giants leasing space inside the largest brick building in Europe. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thank you, Charlie Pellet. Okay, let's get to the topic of the day, the UK, the BOE, the bond market. Um, we, My producer was like, well, do you need a reporter? Do you need someone to talk about this? And I'm like, no, it's Marcus. Marcus is the BOE. So let's go through some of the things here. Uh, you laugh, but it's so true. All right, so... I am not. I'm the nemesis of the BOE. But that same point, really. Um, who isn't at this point? Um, walk me through what the BOE announced today. Because I'm taking a look at the bond market. Um, the sell-off is intensifying. I mean, 23 basis points uh, on 10-year gilts. I'm, uh, I, I, did it work? What did they do? 
Okay, it's hard to explain it in the context of today. Bear in mind, tomorrow there's a, a 30-year bond auction. So the mm. sell-off today is exacerbated by a bunch of dealers probably trying to get overly short. Um, what the Bank of England did today, uh, at the beginning of the day, was to say, look, we've got five days left of our temporary buyback program to help long-end gills, 20 years and long maturity. Uh, we said there was a maximum of five billion per day, but we're going to say 10 billion today. Uh, meaningless, actually. It was just to show that they really wanted to get the message across to markets. They're doing as much as they possibly can for the next uh, five days until it expires. Uh, as it happens, they only uh, bought 780 million. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite a lot still, but nowhere near five, let alone 10. So the key point for me was they, they bought that a half a basis point back from the mid level. Don't get too complicated here, but they've been definitely backing away from being aggressive on the bidding that they were the first two days of this couple of weeks ago. Um, because they felt the market was getting gained, were gaming it, and there were a few too many people in who were not necessarily real sellers or the type of sellers they wanted to help out, i.e. pension funds. So um, this time around, they're a little bit tighter on the bid, showing that they really are trying to do as best they can before the program ends on Friday. However, they also announced a bunch of collateral repo facilities to smooth over the ability for pension funds to put up uh, collateral uh, when they're unwinding swaps and leverage and various other different things, which is a problem that, that got very sharply found out uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that's lasts for an extra month. And there's a few other uh, other slightly more technical things, which sort of helps, but uh, it's just there to say, look, look guys, we got your back. We're, we're willing to help. Um, of course, you know, there are, as I said, uh, you know, another four or five days to go. That will therefore end in theory um, the Bank of England's commitment to this specific problem, though there was, as I said, there will be ability to, in the plumbing, there'll be some further help. The practical problem still remains that um, the other announcements came out today, came out with the government, is they're going to bring forward the sort of uh, autumn budget, which was going to be back in and then, but now it's going to be right at the end of October. Good news in theory. Unfortunately, the date they've chosen clashes directly with when the Bank of England said they're going to restart which they had to cancel because of the, of the guilt meltdown, uh, their quantitative tightening program, which is when they actively start sending their own holdings of QE back into the guilt market. Now, on the same day, there is likely to be announcement, almost certainly, of a very large guilt auction from the government. Also a very long dated bond, 2038. So this is very unfortunate for the Bank of England to be directly competing against the government's issuance of debt. And this is specifically what they've always avoided, certainly over the last few years anyway. So it clearly has to be changed, one would imagine. At the same time, bear in mind that week, same week, when you've got QT properly starting, you've got a big auction coming from the government, you've also got the Fed on the Wednesday and on the Thursday, the Bank of England itself with potentially a very large interest rate hike. That makes it the week from hell if it if it happens. The easy thing to do is the Bank of England to delay again uh, the start of this uh, unwind of their, of their big uh, portfolio, mm -hmm. uh, though I suspect they'll be very unhappy about it. See, I told you we didn't need a reporter or someone else. Perfect. Okay, there's a lot to unpack uh, in this point. So first off, let's just go to this temporary expanded collateral repo facility thing, which is basically going to make it easier for pension funds uh, to post collateral. Um, that is supposed to end uh, in the November 10th, the same way that the guilt purchases are supposed to end at the end of this week. What is our level of confidence that these end dates mean anything? Little. Um, and they're not necessarily supposed to mean too much. What they're supposed to do is, is give these that it's temporary, not permanent. But they want to make sure, obviously, that there's enough 
enough room for pension funds to unwind. This is why it came to, they, they started requiring the actual codes, they called it LEIs, they're the indicator numbers of what your um, institution's, you know, sort of uh, recognition number is, which was very key to the, the, the sudden collapse and the amount of bonds that the uh, Bank of England bought back uh, week before last, because it, uh, obviously it's only really pension funds they are here to help, they're not here to help hedge funds. So um, they're allowing corporate bonds, other types of bonds, uh, other wider eligible collateral to be put up against, uh, as I said, um, various different borrowings into the and um, lendings into the guilt repo collateral system. Mm-hmm. It just makes it overall smoother. They're not basically trying to force pension funds that have to sell gilts they don't wish to sell. Uh, and it just makes it takes a bit of the pressure off the long end of the gilt market in theory. In theory. All in theory. Um, You also pointed out in your piece today that the three largest investment management providers, BlackRock, Legal in General, and Inside Investment Management Global, are going to be permanently reducing their leverage. And you brought up the fact that there is a silver lining like in the future. Walk me through that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, Schroeder's will be the fourth as well. So there's, there's three or four big providers, which a corporate uh, decides it's got its pension fund and it wants to um, essentially reduce uh, the, the requirement for it to buy so many uh, long-dated gilts, which up till recently yielded very little, uh, and perhaps have a ability to sort of maximise its overall exposure to things like equities or longer-term infrastructure, more illiquid instruments. So a lot of these uh, big fund managers, as mentioned, BlackRock, Legal Journal, etc., pitched and won lots of mandates to manage on behalf of other corporates, pension funds, their, their risk in a sense. And this is what came into this liability-driven or LDI investment scheme, which essentially what they did is they took the exposure of long-end gilts, and rather than buy lots and lots of long-end gilts with that capital, they used less capital and leveraged it uh, by doing a long-dated swap. Now, that's what some of these things need to be unwound, and that's why there's a lot of uh, um, leverage in the system. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of it is hedged, and it's perfectly safe, as long as yields don't fall out of bed as they clearly did, went went crazy. And then all of a sudden everyone's scrambling for the exit door and all of a sudden everyone needs to collapse trades and provide collateral. And it all became a a meltdown literally. So in essence, what uh, these these big companies are saying is that we will no longer be running such high leverage in our forward portfolios. There's nothing wrong with LDI at all. It's a a brilliant system. It saves uh, our pensions many billions over the years. Mm -hmm. It's just, it had a weak spot when all of a sudden there's a buyer strike and everyone had to do the same thing at once. And that's why they are actually going to move forward and making sure they don't have some schemes had allegedly uh, up to seven times leverage, which mm-hmm. seems crazy, even though it's very safe stuff. They, they're going to need to reduce that down to one or two times maximum. OK, you guys got all that? Good. OK, great. Let's go to the next story. <laughs> uh, so that's the UK bond market. Uh, let's go to the European bond market. So super interesting headline that the EU is looking at issuing forms of debt, loans, not grants, but to manage the energy crisis. And you're seeing uh, uh, the BTP bond spread was 250 basis points wide. It shrunk by about 20, 30 basis points. This is very significant. You're definitely seeing the reaction in the bond market. So let's get to it. Uh, Will Kennedy uh, joins us. He's executive editor uh, for Commodities. Um, OK, Will. How relevant is that? Like, they issue this debt, then what do they use it for? What happens? Walk me through how you see it. Well, I think it allows, um, uh, again, the burden of uh, the energy crunches we're coming 
through this tough winter to be shared among some weaker countries. Obviously, Germany, uh, with the strongest balance sheet in the European Union, has been able to throw huge amounts of money at the problem, announcing a 200 billion euro package uh, to ease the burden for um, consumers and businesses. Now, they took some criticism for that move because... Uh, other EU countries said, well, we want a more, con- it's all right for you, we want a more coordinated approach, we want more discussions about how to approach these issues at a community-wide level. Um, and this appears to be some sort of response to say, well, we're willing uh, to look again at, at burden-sharing here, burden sharing here with the EU joint EU debt. Importantly, for, for loans, not direct grants, so it would have to pay back. And for some countries, this might be a welcome way uh, especially in Eastern Europe, where it's colder and they're very reliant on um, Russian gas, uh, to ease the impact for their population through the winter. So, well, I mean, just get me on this. It, it's not necessarily a Hamilton moment. Uh, it's not even really a next generation EU moment. It's possibly a bit of a sure moment, which is the employment job supports program. But, I mean, Schultz does, he does seem to have backed away from Germany first. Oh, you guys don't like the fact we're looking after ourselves, or maybe we still all as one great big thing again. So that's obviously where I had the reaction from, uh, you know, bad for German debt and obviously good for, say, Italian debt. But it just seemed to me that, you know, can we believe he's going to stand by his word? Or I know he said he's going to wait for the Italian government to be formed. But, I mean, is this a big thing, a big moment? I think it is a significant moment. I think, as you know, any time we see Germany... Uh, Oh. Behind the pad. Oh, oh. Well, you, we're losing Hello. you a little bit. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Can you hear Try me again. Sorry. sorry about that. Uh, sorry about that glitch. Um, I think any time we see Germany put its balance sheet behind uh, a pan-European effort, it, it's an important moment. Absolutely. Um, but I do think it's also an important moment in the geopolitics of the situation. It's a signal to Russia that hopes of dividing Europe. You know, they've put a lot of, you know, Hungary, for example, and Bulgaria have have been perhaps identified as a slightly weaker link in this issue, willing to talk not directly to Russia. This potentially is a weapon that allows Europe uh, to maintain solidarity and is a signal to Russia that if you hope through the energy weapon to break European resolve over this winter, here is another reason to doubt whether that's possible. Well, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Will Kennedy joining us, executive editor uh, for Commodities. Um, Marcus, are you surprised by the market reaction? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's exactly as you'd expect in the theory that uh, Germany says everyone else can borrow debt, but the basic reality is that Germany probably will have to pay for a lot of this. Uh, and it shows the debt break in Germany, uh, which can be relaxed, is one thing. Uh, um, their attitude to uh, looking after themselves remains, but they've been pressurised heavily in, in, in Europe on this. And essentially, the easiest thing to do is to give in. Uh, parcel it, it's like they parceled uh, it up for the pandemic into sort of a specific problem, put it in a bucket. But there's no doubt about it. That the more this goes on, uh, you know, the more and more we're getting closer to a proper euro bond. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And it seems like the escalation over the weekend between Ukraine and Russia would imply that it will be going on uh, a lot longer than anyone thinks, which means the energy crisis. We need even more money uh, to deal with that. So we're going to get the latest on that just after the break here uh, and talk more about the advances in Ukraine and the suffering over the last 24 hours. This is Bloomberg. This 
is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's off today. Marcus Ashworth uh, so kindly joins me from the UK. Let's turn to geopolitics. So Russian President Vladimir Putin has now threatened further missile strikes on Ukraine after Russia hit Kiev and other cities in the most intense barrage of strikes since the first day of its invasion. Um, A huge escalation. It's hard to understate the escalation that we've seen in this war. Let's get to Bloomberg's Rosalind Matheson, who joins us now. Roz, walk us through how you see it from your lens in the escalation over the last uh, 48 hours. Well, in a way, some kind of retaliation is unsurprising because this bridge explosion that happened on Saturday, this is the key link between Crimea and its Crimea and the rest of Russia, was a real personal prestige blow to the Russian president. This was his project uh, that he envisaged really showing the logistical power of Russia. He even drove a truck over it to mark the opening of it. And so the ability to strike at it and cause significant damage to this key logistical hub for Russia forces was really a strike at the centre for, for Vladimir Putin and of course him blaming Ukraine, even though Ukraine has not claimed responsibility and calling a terrorist act opened the door for him to, to, to strike back and we saw that with a blizzard of missiles today across Ukrainian cities, the biggest attack uh, from missile strikes since the outbreak of the war uh, and a bunch of key cities hit, infrastructure hit, but also a lot of civilian targets hit in that uh, and it was a message really that he's got that as his war becomes even more fraught on the ground, he'll probably resort to further missile strikes to try and take out infrastructure and also just to try and uh, and sow discord uh, for the Ukrainian people heading into winter. So it does seem to me that um, the bridge is still sort of operative in, in the context of one of the uh, one way, <laughs> as long as they coordinate it, you know, all, all start from one end, not the other, you know, 12 miles, you don't want to get that one wrong. There, there is, it still exists, and no doubt at some point it could be fixed. But for the moment, it, it's very much the blame has been put back onto Ukraine as opposed to any hopes we may have in the West here of some internal Russia or Russian intrigue. Is that fair to say? Well, that's right. Certainly the blame is being put on Ukraine. It seems the driver of the truck was Russian, but uh, the question is, did he know what was in the back of his truck as he went across this bridge? As you mentioned, it is partially operational again, but it's a big bridge and it's supposed to carry a lot of things, cars, trains, uh, you name it, and it's very badly damaged. And the footage shows that they're still having difficulty even getting singular trains across it. They're having to bring in ferries uh, to traverse the area by water instead. And given how much they need to funnel stuff out of Crimea to support the Russian troops who are fighting in the south of Ukraine, and that's where the activity has really been picking up, mm-hmm. it is a significant blow, not just to prestige, but also to the fight on the ground. So this brings me to you, Marcus, because hedging geopolitical risk has been total folly over the last few years, really ever since Brexit. And even that, you only could hedge it for like a day. Um, when the path of least resistance seems to be a major escalation and a President Putin kind of backed into the corner. As a market participant, what do you do? Huh. He's like, uh, I don't well, know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's so many moving parts going on here that at the moment it's it's one of these things that you know, we know we, we have to see some substantive uh, uh, shifts before mm-hmm. we can get uh, too excited and evidently um, you know, what can't, what, the OPEC and oil was probably I want to say more important, but more market moving specifically on this. So, um, I mean, we're all obviously just watching and waiting. But it doesn't help 
uh, with reducing volatility. Should we just leave it at that? <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, but, but that also brings me, Ross, to the point of what kind of escalation are we going to continue to see or do we need a, a better off-ramp for Vladimir Putin? Well, the ultimate question is, what would that off-ramp be? How do you present something at this point that allows the Russian president to, to say or at least believe that he got something out of this when Ukraine will not agree to cede any territory as part of a negotiation? So they're at the point where, where, where off-ramps are very, very difficult to predict Indeed. Uh, and certainly he seems, the Russian president seems to be insistent on pushing forward. Perhaps he thinks as the terrain turns muddy into winter, he can turn the screws uh, on the Ukrainians simply by uh, cutting their power off. As we saw today, hitting those sites has damaged electricity uh, in Ukraine and we're getting into those colder months on the ground. And certainly he's managed to, with some effect to cause trouble for Europe in terms of access energy. So does he sort of look at that and say more broadly, I've managed to cause problems for the rest of the world and that's enough? Uh, possibly not because he fundamentally believes in his heart that Ukraine somehow is part of Russia and he's on a cause to do that. Um, so what we're likely to see is a pattern of further escalation, particularly again, if things sustain in sort of a bogged down fashion on the ground and his troops can't make much progress into winter. Um, the question is, is he satisfied with that Congress, that, that, that conflict sort of grinding along slowly for several months um, while he causes problems on the energy front? Or does he look for some kind of other uh, action uh, to get attention? Well, it certainly seems, uh, I've just had to Google the, uh, the terrible 007 James Bond film. It was apparently uh, licensed to kill when they blew up the, uh, I think, the Seven Mile Bridge to uh, Key West mm -hmm, or whatever mm -hmm. it was. But, uh, I mean, when uh, when is this all shut down for winter? I mean, that's, is that, is that mm. there's a definitive, uh, when, the, when the sort of snows come in across, is that when, you know, basically the Ukraine push, which has clearly been very successful up to now, uh, sort of grinds down and, and everyone basically just locks down for, for for a few months. Is that how it plays out? And just lobs obviously uh, ordnance across it, the, each other, I guess. Well, that is the, is, is the possibility because the Ukrainian offensive was much faster in the east um, and we saw a lot of success there. It's been a lot slower in the south. Uh, it's certainly progressing, but it's moving much more slowly. And that's where the better trained Russian troops and equipment remain. And as the terrain becomes very muddy and bogged down, you need to rely much more on armoured vehicles and tanks. Uh, moving infantry forward becomes very difficult. So do they basically end up, as you were saying, sort of stuck in these positions, lobbing ordnance at each other and really making sort of inches versus miles of terrain? Or, or does Ukraine say we've got a window here to really push Russia properly back in the south and we've got a matter of weeks and we need to try and take it? Ross, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. Ross Matheson joining us uh, from Bloomberg. All right, that's one geopolitical crisis. The next is what's happening with chips between China and the U.S. We're going to break that down uh, after the break. Uh, Semi-stocks are down like 10, 11, 12 percent in the last two trading sessions. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy's off today. Marcus Ashworth joins me from the UK. Um, stocks trading pretty heavy here in the US. Uh, 
much worse than they were over in Europe. For example, the DAX pretty much ended flat. The European stocks were off by five tenths. Here in the U.S., Nasdaq is off by one and a half percent. S&P now off a full one percentage point, right around the lows uh, of the session. Treasury market, I should point out, is closed for the day, and a big part of that story are chip stocks. The stocks. SOX Semi Index is down by about 11% over the past two days. We'll get to that in just a moment. And what are you doing? Everyone's buying the dollar. Bloomberg Dollar Index yet another record high, up by three tenths of one percent. I say this because we've seen this movie before, like a lot of times. Uh, okay, let's get some <laughs> other movies with Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Alex Steele. UBS's house prices in the UK look set to slide next year as the cost of paying a mortgage is no longer cheaper than renting. UBS analysts say mortgage repayments as a proportion of income have increased to more than 40% after hikes to interest rates, adding that is a key pinch point that will result in house prices dropping by. 10% next year. The UK's financial watchdog is asking banks more questions about their staff's use of private messaging services as the financial watchdog ups its scrutiny of a habit that has seen American regulators hand out more than $2 billion in total penalties. An industry group uh, survey finds Dutch greenhouses are cutting output of food and flowers and almost a tenth expect to be forced into bankruptcy soon by Europe's energy crisis. The recent survey by Gloucester Nederland is one of the latest signs of how the region's energy crunch is making it more expensive to produce goods and commodities. A quarter of the Netherlands' cultivation area has been cut. 8% of greenhouse businesses predict filing for bankruptcy this year. The country is the top flower exporter and one of Europe's largest fresh fruit and vegetable producers. Its greenhouses are particularly vulnerable due to the cost of lighting and heating the massive glass structures that cover an area equivalent to 17,000 football fields. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Random stuff that Charlie knows. Talk about random. Hey, Marcus, did you see that article that France is turning off monument lights overnight because they want to save electricity and hope residents look at that and feel like they want to turn off their lights too? I think it's called virtue signaling in every sense. It, it's kind of crazy, and I guess that's your indicator now. When the when the lights from the Eiffel Tower turn on at night, like that's our uh, like that's our energy indicator when everything's going to wind up being okay. That feels very it, poetic. It is. It's weird. In the UK, we're doing quite the reverse. We're not doing any form of uh, signaling at all. We're, we're just hoping that everyone's got the common sense to work out that if their bills are going up, they should actually not be quite so spendthrift with electricity. But it's a different approach. Uh, I'm not sure what works, but it certainly <laughs> sends a message. The one that really gets me is the 14 degrees that or they're going to be in the corridors. The, of the European uh, Union's offices, chilly. That's really cold. That's that's yeah. I mean, as a woman, we're used to cold stuff. I got to be honest, because offices are usually cold. But still, nonetheless, now you can all feel our pain. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, I was mentioning the chips uh, stocks index, the semi index, um, down by about eleven percent in the next couple in the last couple days. You got of you got Broadcom, you got Qualcomm, Nvidia, all getting hit really hard within the Nasdaq 100, which is why we're seeing the lowest level since September 2020 for that index. So let's get more on the politics of all of this. Want to bring in Bloomberg's uh, Joe Matthew? Joe, this all stemmed from Friday, uh, as you have fresh U.S. curbs on China's access to American technology. We know that part. Is there going to be some kind of retaliation from China on this? That's a great question. And it's it's hard to tell what it would be. You know, we're we are clearly in an economic war here, if I can say that out loud. I mean, it's kind of an economic cold war, I guess. And and this does uh, significantly threaten 
China's semiconductor industry that they're trying, of course, to uh, to to blow out on their own domestically here. You know, we both rely quite a bit on on each other for so many things. And and it brings us back to the beginning of September. That warning from NVIDIA, I looked back, was on the 1st of September. That was kind of the first time we thought, okay, this is going to be a little bit bigger than some had thought. Hundreds of millions of dollars lost in revenue, and it's escalated since then. AI and supercomputing chips specifically. But did you see this, Alex? There, the, the Commerce Department is adding 31 Chinese companies to a list of firms considered unverified. That would basically make it impossible to sell any high tech to them. And it's all happening following the attempt to reshore computer chip manufacturing here in this country. I mean, these are two massive, like the two biggest economies in the world preparing for total isolation from one another. So Joe, I mean, the law of unintended consequences, uh, what does China do actively to uh, you know, push back on this? And where is the biggest risk, perhaps, of, of spillover of the U.S. actually shooting itself in the foot and That's the rest a, of the world, for that matter? Mm-hmm. Look, it's a great question. And you can almost uh, look to, to the standoff over Taiwan for parallels here, right? Like we're we're clearly looking out for our own interests here. We don't want to be reliant upon another country, particularly one we don't have a great relationship with, for what apparently is the most important commodity of all, and that would be the computer chip. You know, whether you're talking about weapons, household items, communications, your cell phone, all the stuff, they need the same chips. But these are also a higher level when you start talking about AI and supercomputing. And and China doesn't have access to that stuff without us, right? We design them, they make them in Taiwan. China isn't doing much of either at this point. And if we think about this from a military standpoint, that's a lot of jets, a lot of boats, a lot of missiles that cannot be built without some really high-tech uh, computer chips here. But what's China going to do? I mean, look, we still have tariffs against China that, that the United States was supposedly thinking about bringing down here. It's, it does feel like we're tightening the screws more than they are. Yeah. And, and uh, we'll see. I mean, the reaction has been strong from Beijing. That doesn't equal action yet, though. No, yeah, and you mentioned economic war. I mean, like people have said that, you know, mm-hmm. that that is and that brings us to sort of an off ramp, which is what we talked about when it came to Ukraine. Also, like, you know, having the world's two biggest economies fighting over this where there is no off ramp feels very scary. Um, what's the end goal then? Well, look, the end goal is to keep China. This is about competition, right? Economic competition. You can call it an economic war. uh, But, you know, we're taking an incredibly powerful tool away from China, at least for now. And, you know, in terms of retaliation, uh, what is this going to mean for Taiwan? This is, you know, this is where so many computer chips are made. And we've, China has already proven to us that they can blockade that island in about a, a minute's time. I mean, following the Nancy Pelosi trip, there was a uh, a blockade around Taiwan that made it very difficult for them to do anything here. Is that what we're going to see again? Are we going to see more incursions in the Taiwan Strait, maybe cut off exports from Taiwan? Beijing mm-hmm. is capable of doing all of that. And that would be the that would be probably the most extreme reaction we could think of. But this is real stuff. It As is. a actual hot war goes on in Europe, this cold war uh, is one that could last longer. All right, Joe, really appreciate it. Uh, Joe Matthew joining us uh, from D.C. Um, and Marcus, you know, you said it in our in our chat that we're talking about, but I was also thinking it. How is this going to help inflation? Seriously? Well, it's not going to help. The Fed is just going to look at this and think, oh my lord. Well, the labor market as tight as it clearly was in that payroll report on Friday. I mean, if this just makes me feel, I mean, I, I'm, I'm already so depressed listening to my wonderful colleague, Javier Blas, on anything commodity-driven <laughs> those days, that I'm just coming out the back of this thinking, oh, my word, we are mm-hmm. making it so much harder for ourselves on a logistical 
nightmare you know new cars are not going to happen car prices oh it's just the, the ramifications with this if it's as serious as it clearly looks like it could be are the as i said the law of unintended consequences are quite huge well so let's get to that uh wujin ho is from bloomberg intelligence he covers the technology and chip sector uh and joins us now wujin is this going to be massively inflationary for 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 chip companies like is this what we're going to wind up seeing uh, potentially no, not at least in the near term. And, and, and here are a couple of reasons why. Um, if, you, if you look at uh, AMD's negative pre-announcement, we're, we're starting to see um, uh, uh, oversupply and, and destocking by the PC in, industry on, on, um, on, on purchasing chips, right? So what we're going to have is a, a massive inventory of chips going forward. Now, in the buildup of, over the last couple of years, uh, what we've what we've seen is a lot more capacity to come online uh, to meet this supposed demand that was supposed to uh, uh, be sustained over over a multi-year period. That isn't happening because of what's happening with the uh, with the economy. So so near term, it might not be inflationary at all. Now now longer term, from from an equipment uh, perspective, yes, it, it it could be, but but it's still really tough to see beyond two years. Eugene, I've just clambered back in from the window ledge. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'll take your number whenever I'm feeling a bit down. Um, all right. So it's in some senses what you're saying is that it, there's a lot of uh, you know, should we say what's it, old stuff, but there's a lot of inventory out there, things we worked out, and we don't quite know how some of the more high end or, or, or complicated stuff will, will shake out. Is is that a, one way of putting it? Sure. So, so, so even on the high end, if you if you think about all all the devices uh, that need high end chips, right? Uh, your 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 smartphone, your PCs and servers, um, the demand for those particular goods are, are not going to be as strong because of recessionary concerns. Uh, those orders that were placed probably three to six months ago, they're starting to uh, start start to fold. So even the advanced chips, um, the demand for the advanced chips are going to co- come down. As a result, the, the pricing is going to uh, adjust to, to, to the demand, uh, to, to the new realities of the demand environment. Um, but, you know, lo- longer term, uh, once we start getting back to a normalized em- environment, uh, that, that chip capacity is going to be sucked up uh, in, in one degree or, or, or another. And this actually comes back to the original conversation. Um, to, to the, the U.S.-China technology war, um, the, the U.S. is actually trying to slow down the advanced chip manufacturing with, with some of these proposed sanctions. Um, so to that point, it not only is going to hurt, though, U.S. companies that sell stuff to China, but also U.S. companies that need some of the stuff from China to finish building their own thing. Do we have an idea yet of which companies uh, we need to be watching out for the most? Sure. Well, I mean, for, from... from uh, from selling stuff to China, uh, it, it's going to be companies like uh, uh, NVIDIA and, and AMD, as well as in, Intel, uh, to some degree, uh, primarily because they're the ones who make the advanced uh, um, uh, advanced chips, right, uh, for, for, for the industry. In, in terms of buying stuff from China, they don't make many advanced chips. If, any, if anything, um, the, the risk here over the long term, or at least in the near term, is they retaliate with um, slowdowns in manufacturing. Uh, roughly 70% of electronics manufacturing is sourced out of China. That's number one. And number two, 38% of the legacy chips are, are, are built in China. So, you know, where, where we may be strong, where the U.S. and the Taiwanese are strong in these advanced chip-making uh, uh, capabilities, the Chinese are very, very strong 
in, in, in the, the legacy chip making. And, and if they scale back on that, um, uh, that could actually even clog up or muck up the supply chain, um, even in a, in, in a low demand environment. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking also, particularly of Japanese, I used to be a Japanese equity derivative for Walla for quite a while, uh, and likewise Korean companies, because it's not just US we're going to think about there, there is obviously some exposure in Europe, but principally I'm thinking Korean and uh, Japanese companies. Are there any particular ones there you'd highlight which uh, which may have some issues? Well, from an issue perspective, um, I, 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 if anything, they're going to be beneficiaries. Right, uh, Samsung Electronics uh, and, and Samsung Memory, and, and um, will we'll be a bit beneficiary there. Uh, Kyoksha uh, out, out of Japan and Micron out of the U.S. They, they should, they, they could benefit. Um, you know, if anything, the Chinese uh, needs uh, the rest of the world more uh, right now because they need the equipment to build the uh, not not uh, the the, uh, the chips uh, to complete the build the material. But uh, uh, right now, right now, near term at least, it's, it's more of a dem- global demand issue for, mm-hmm. for the Chinese and, and the Koreans and, and the uh, Japanese. All right. Wujin, thanks very much. Wujin Ho joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence uh, on the chip issue. So, Marcus, like, do you feel better? Do you not feel better? What's your state of feeling right now? I do feel better. I do feel better. I'm breathing again. And I, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely the heart rate's coming down. But I'm, I, there's obviously wider stuff uh, I was just going to ask mm. Wujin with, you know, about rare earth elements. You know, what there's a bunch of stuff that, that China can, can restrict and, mm-hmm. and, and play uh, difficult on. And that's, that's yet to fly out. But uh, clearly, this is a very punchy geopolitical move from the Biden administration. I just wonder the, the timing of the, the midterms going to do with it. Mm. I, I don't think so. But it's just interesting uh, foreign policy move. Yeah, especially when oil prices are also going up. But to your rare earth point, um, I feel like that was on the table when I started carving commodities 15 years ago. <laughs> In that that is always the biggest threat that we think that China has, and it still hasn't truly been activated yet. Um, so I do feel like some companies have tried to get ahead of it and get their own sources uh, for lithium in particular. So anyway, see, I can nerd out too. It's just more on the commodity side, not the <laughs> not the guild side. Um, Heck you out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about the liquidity in the U.S. Treasury market. Talk about geeking out. This is going to be also like Marcus's thing here. Um, are, mu- are markets functioning properly? Where are they not functioning properly? Where are the issues? Um, are we going to see a point where the Fed's going to have to rescue the Treasury market like the BOE had to rescue the gilt market? And what do those conditions look like? We're going to break that down for you. You've been listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus Ashworth over in the UK. Guy Johnson's off today. So one of the top red stories on the terminal right now, the title, the most powerful buyers and treasuries are all bailing at once. And so everywhere you turn, all the players in the almost $24 trillion treasury market are in retreat from foreign governments to U.S. commercial banks to Japanese pensions to life insurers. Doesn't sound that great. This might bum Marcus out again, too. Um, Liz McCormick uh, joins us now from Bloomberg. She wrote, she was one of the writers on the story, the head writer on the story, and she joins me now in the studio. Um, Liz, walk me through the thesis for the article. 
Well, you know, it's like a growing crescendo of people. In fact, uh, I think some of the people I interviewed were like, Liz, when is that story getting out? It's such a big deal. Like all these buyers who are like the stalwart for supporting the treasury market, the biggest one being the Fed, right? Who you guys have talked about. All the central banks are rolling off their debt. Uh, but commercial banks and, you know, foreign governments are not buying as much. So, you know, added to the macro factor of high inflation, which hurts, you know, fixed income, you have a big question of, these buyers have been kind of the backbone of the market, kind of who's the new buyer kind of thing. So that's what we were getting at, you know, people speculating. And I think one guy, um, what the way he said it, I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, whoever these new buyers are, they're going to be more price sensitive, meaning, you know, they hmm. want a better yield, right? So and we're seeing that already, right? Yield higher. Well, Liz, I mean, I, I often thought uh, that the, the future of the next crisis is embedded in the reaction to the last one. And clearly, um, most people in, in markets would say that the overregulation since the global financial crisis has just constrained and reduced the ability of investment banks in particular to be able to react. Now, uh, one of my colleagues wrote a piece, which another thing that really scared me the other day was that um, primary dealers, I used to trade US treasury bonds, and when my day, primary dealers were the kings of the hill, they, they controlled everything. But even as uh, long ago as 2008, primary dealer volume, there's 25 big firms basically, uh, they made up about 50% of the value apparently of treasuries outstanding. That now, apparently according to Merrill, Bank of America, is only two and a half percent. So the people who are making the markets allegedly what you know, everything conduit and it goes through, are, are, are absolutely minuscule fraction of the market now, which means that there's no I mean, okay, you can let Citadel in and a few other ones, but you then you're getting out of the remit of proper scrutiny. So we, we seem to have got ourselves in a situation where we've regulated ourselves into a standstill and we have no flexibility, even when, as you quite rightly say, the Fed is starting to sell treasuries as Japan doesn't want them anymore, as the banks probably have had enough too. Well, Mark, as you're getting at, which I agree is a big issue, is like liquidity in the marketplace, you know? And uh, your colleague, you mentioned, wrote about it. We've written about it from the U.S. side that I think it's a problem. And although you, you've probably long, around long enough like me that, that you know, every, there's never a fully agreement how to fix things. But let's just say a lot of people do agree with you that the regulation, especially the supplementary leverage ratio, has constrained these big dealer banks. You know, their, their balance sheets just can't expand at the time you really need it, you know? And on the U.S. side, that has a lot of people saying, even though they've created some backstops, you know, the, the you know, repo lending facility, et cetera, um, that the Fed is really the main backstop in town, right? And the Fed is trying to get out of the bondholding business, right? Because of this, you know, <laughs> QT. You're making him laugh. You're like, yeah, let's see if that happens. I thought I wanted to bring his heart rate down. I heard him on the other spot. Um, but yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of hand-wringing that like, although the Fed officials seem to be saying everything's fine, market's functioning, but there is a lot of hand-wringing that, you know, that we have a problem. Maybe the Fed can't ultimately get as far in QT as they may want. I don't know, but I agree with you. that you know, Some say it's a mix of things, but there are a lot that say it's the uh, post-2008 regulation that went a little too far. Um, so are, is the market functioning properly? Yeah, I would say, I mean, there's a few people, I mean, many, but let's just say um, some of the folks at J.P. Morgan, Josh Younger's really been expert on this for a long time, and he talked to me for a while. He, he raves, uh, waves a lot of red flags, but he says the market is functioning. You remember during the uh, 2022 crisis when people really start just 
selling everything they have because they need cash in the treasury market they sell a, a lot of what they call off the runs the more seasoned older securities because they've held them for a while uh, and, and that massive dumping is when the Fed had to come in but Josh was saying for now we're seeing a lot of activity on the benchmark stuff so I don't think the market's not functioning um, that kind of like John Williams of the New York Fed said but who knows in a couple months? And like Marcus was getting at, we have an underlying issue that these balance sheets just aren't elastic enough. And if we get in a bad enough pinch, again, it's the Fed that's the main backstop in town. <laughs> well, you know, it would never happen in, uh, in that market, I'm sure. It, it would never happen in the UK market until we found out three weeks ago that actual fact it could. A pension regulator would sleep at the wheel combined with a very uh, poorly received uh, you know, new approach to finance, uh, financial um, budgeting from, from the government. But you know, it clearly sent a shockwave through uh, the UK market. And everyone's looking at the, you know, the volatility index in the US, you know, the move index, which is you know, as high in volatility terms as it has been for a very long while. Um, and then you know, we just had the dollar here, which is the other thing which, which fixes me is that, is that you know, as Alex was saying, it's at the highest it's been for you know, X years. Again, it pushes higher. If in doubt, the smile, I mean, everything that goes wrong in the world, you buy the dollar. Even if something goes wrong in the US Treasury market, which it may do, you still have to buy the dollar, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's creating, uh, you know, havoc around the world, right? You know, and the Fed has tried to say, well, we're monitoring, but we have a domestic mandate and, you know, we have inflation too high. But I think you're right. And I think uh, the the growing, let's just say a little a few op-eds over the weekend, I read in different financial papers, just saying how this is causing a lot of issues for from emerging market countries elsewhere. So I, it just seems like all these prongs can't keep going. Going forever, right? You know, uh, liquidity is going to be an issue. Is this dollar strength going to really break enough that the Fed has to kind of adjust a little? I don't, I don't know, but I, I think um, I spoke to Paul McCullough the other day, and he was saying like all these like a trinity. You can't keep it all floating at once. Something's going to break. Cool. On that note, guys, thanks for cheering me up. Uh, Liz McCormick joining us from Bloomberg. Great stuff. Really appreciate it, Marcus. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You know, you may, you may be bumming me out, but you do it with flair. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And a flutter of my heart, that's for sure. There you go. All right. Have a great night, guys. See you tomorrow. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg.